Welcome to the audio podcast for Beit Abba, the Messianic Jewish ministry at the Father's House. We exist to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people and to connect Christians to Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith. Okay, so let's talk about the gospel according to Moses. Oh, wait a minute. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all them saints is dead and gone. No. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Moses. The last time we gathered, we talked about the road to Emmaus and how everything written was about Jesus. And he's walking along with the guys. And if you were here last time, it was a great message. Even if I spoke it, it was really great because the whole book is about Jesus. And so we're going to look at the gospel according to Moses, which is really finds a highlight in um, Genesis 22. Genesis 22. So, wherever you get your podcast, go and listen to my interview with Eugene. You want to hear it. Uh, we've gotten great reviews about it because it's about the, what we're coming into in America, what Catherine prayed against, and what we are dealing with out there. It's important. So, that said, Gospel according to Moses uh, is, we see it in Genesis 22 which is the, what the Jewish people call the Akedah. Turn to somebody and say Akedah. Yeah. It means the binding, the binding of Isaac. And it's one of the most profound pictures of Jesus that we see in the Old Testament, Older Testament. And that's what the Jews around the world are reading this weekend. Sometimes you got to find what... God's doing in the natural with my people, and he'll speak to us in the spirit from that passage. Uh, it happens all the time. And, uh, oh gosh, in the song that uh, no longer slave to fear, that's my, my son's, my older son's return to Jesus theme song. No longer slave to fear. So every time I hear it, I kind of lose it, because that's what brought him back. And now he's in full-time ministry, thank God. I'm really grateful I didn't murder him in high school, which was really on the table. It was an option. And one preacher says that uh, grandchildren are the reward for not killing your children, which I think is probably true. So, so we have a picture of Abraham, whose name has been changed. He was Abram. Now he's been changed to Abraham. You heard me preach this because God breathed the fifth letter of the alphabet, the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the hey. Alphabet, Kimmel, Dalit, hey. Hey. He breathed that breath into Abram and he became Abraham. Put that H in him. And that was the breath of God. He did it to Sarai also. He breathed into her and made her Sarah. And that H is giving them life. The breath of God rejuvenated them. So at 190, they're having a baby. And the women said, no. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. And Abram, now Abraham is going to uh, be called to one of the most difficult passages to understand in the Bible. Called to sacrifice his son. Now, you as believers in Yeshua, it seems like normal, but I'm telling you, for Jews, it's the hardest thing in the world. Listen to some of the rabbinical objections. In the end, I have to strip the Akedah of its literal elements. Looking at it as a story involving a real man and a real son is just too terrible. On a literal level, the text teaches us that the binding of Isaac is a test of Abraham's faith. God needs to know 
if Abraham and his descendants will be able to fulfill their part of the covenantal relationship. And yet this answer is so problematic. What kind of a God? That deserves a Jewish accent. What kind of a God would ask a parent to sacrifice a child as a test? It doesn't make sense. There must be something more than that. And what is the more than that? It's a type. But if you're a Jew without Jesus, you don't see that it's a type, meaning a foreshadowing, a picture of another father who would actually sacrifice his son for you. Amen. So you can't understand it. And that's why my, my rabbinical friends, they bang their head against this for, for centuries, trying to understand, like, what? Because we don't believe in child sacrifice, although we've drifted into it over the decades, centuries, and we're dealing with it right now. Hallelujah, there's a change coming. There's a change coming. That was Rabbi Joseph Black from the Los Angeles Synagogue. But these things were written for us as similitudes, it says in the King James. Sometimes you've got to use the King James because it's just so cool. Similitudes, but really... It's parables in the NLT, which is popular today. I sent my prophets to warn you, Hosea 12.10, with many visions and parables. These things are similitudes, they're pictures, they're, they're for our understanding that we can know how to walk and how not to walk. Right? That's Hosea 12.10. Romans 15.4 says it this way. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. Anybody waiting for a promise? Yes. Two of you? I am waiting for promises to be fulfilled. I think you're, yeah, you're in the right place. We are those that wait for promises to be fulfilled, right? And so, so that's part of what these pictures are. Abraham believed the Lord, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. He believed that God had a problem. We're going to see in a moment that God said, Abram, take your son, your only son who you love, take him up where I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him. That's God's problem. Because he told Abram earlier that in Genesis 12 and following, he told Abram, you are going to have a son, a supernaturally born son, and he is going to have many children. Well, God, if I kill him, he can't have many children. So, since he is a young man, he's not a baby like you see in your Sunday school. He's a young man, I, probably close to 30, we're thinking. You know? And so he had to voluntarily lay down his life. Hmm, interesting. But he was going to have many children, right? Yes. Father Abraham, I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Mm, 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 mm. My sons would come home from preschool and I'd say, how to go today? He'd say, we push and we shove. Okay. Anything else? Jesus. Okay, it's fine. God would have to resurrect Isaac. That's why Abraham's the father of faith, not just because he had Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes and King David and Jesus, hallelujah, but because he had faith in the resurrection. He saw something prophetically that made him the father of our faith. He, it, God counted it to him for righteousness because he was obedient and he believed that God could resurrect the dead. Wow. We think life started at the cross. For you and me, life starts at the cross. We understand that. But there's a whole host of people that had faith 
in the word of God and faith in the character of God. And we're going to see them again. That's why Jesus said they're going to have dinner with Abraham and the saints of old. Come on. How cool is that? I have a friend in Israel who wrote a book called Who Ate Lunch with Abraham? When those three came to his tent and the laughing broke out because how am I going to have a baby? That visitation was two angels and the Lord himself, I believe. A theophany, Jesus himself, and then the two angels went on to do, do what they had to do in Sodom. Right. right? But there was a visitation there. Abraham was interacting by faith with the risen Lord and before the crucifixion. And I think he may have even thought, I think I'm into something prophetic here. I'm not sure what this is. But he's either going to bring the boy back or something's going on here because it's just, just too, uh, too big, too amazing. He couldn't, couldn't think of it. So he's the father of our faith. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed to me. Yeshua, Messiah, died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. That's the impartation that's what makes us believers, right? It's not because we go to church. It's not because we read the Bible. It's not any of those things. It's that we realize that he died and rose from the dead. I mean, that's the gospel, right? That's the belief that makes us so weird <laughs> in the eyes of the world. But, hey, that's their problem. So, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied. Hineni. Try that. Hineni. Here I am. That was the original name of the Jews for Jesus ministry. It was Hineni. But the New Yorkers, every summer, when we would go and witness on the street in New York, the, the people would say, ah, it's summer. It must be summer. The Jews for Jesus are here. So it became that name. But originally it was called Hineni Ministries. Here I am. Send me. Right? Isaiah said it. Isaiah 6. Abraham says it here. Here I am. What you want? <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? That's what I've been telling my grandson, my poor grandson. His name's Asher. But I said, how about you talking about, Willis? Because he doesn't talk yet. <laughs> Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom your only son. Watch that. Your son, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, this was a supernatural birth. Remember, he was 100 and she was 90. Yep. They had a baby, yep. right? A supernatural son, promised son. Uh, Ishmael was born 13 years prior. He was a natural son, came through Hagar. That's a whole story that I won't do tonight, but I love that whole story because of what I see happening in the world right now is that some distant relatives of Ishmael and some distant relatives of Yeshua are kind of coming together in peace in a way that no one could have prophesied or seen. So we don't know what it means yet. Right? So New York Jews were skeptical, right? So here's what I, I say, trust in God but tie your camel. That's what the Arabs told me. And they were right. So I'm, I'm watching this. I'm watching United Arab Emirates and I'm watching uh, Sudan and I'm watching Bahrain and, these, and it's like blowing my mind, but I'm tentative about it, you know, because I think there might be some other things that are going to unfold in Ezekiel 38, 39, kind of things that might unfold before we get to the happy ending that we will be going to because Jesus is Lord. Could be a bumpy ride. Take your son and supernaturally 
your son that was given to you supernaturally, and take him, your promised son, and sacrifice him. Interesting note. This is Isaac, whom you love so much. First mention of the word love in the Bible. Takes all the way to get to Genesis 22 before we hear the word love, and it's here. How cool is God that he puts in this picture, this type of the promised son who will take away the sins of the world because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The first time we see the word love is in this typology of Isaac. God's cool. I have to tell him that someday. I don't know how to say that, though. So God, It's like God asks us every day, do you trust me? Do you, will you trust me? Do you trust me? He t- that's what he did with Abraham here, right? You trust me? Kind of, yeah. You know, yes, sir. Yeah, I'm going to do the thing. But are you kidding me? You're going to have to resurrect him, which means I got to believe in your resurrection power, which means I got to believe that you are the God of character that I believe into. People ask me sometimes when a loved one dies, you know, and we're not sure about the salvation. I see my own father that way. He died when I was 18. I, I don't know. But I trust God's mercy, and I trust God's character. And so I, don't, I can't worry about it. I don't know. I'll find out. I don't know where he is. You know? And so that's a word for some of you tonight. It's like you may not know the details of a thing, but you can trust his character. You can trust his perfect mercy and his perfect judgment. Right? That's what we're believing into, and that's what he did here. So every day we have that question asked to us, do you trust me today? Yeah, you know, it's been a little thin lately. You know, kind of, yeah, sort of. We have relative moments of trust, right? And I think what's happening for us as Americans, because we're so used to comfort and leisure and a happy, clappy experience with Jesus, and we don't suffer, we don't, we don't want to get yelled at at Starbucks for saying his name. You know, you know we, we, have, we, we have not yet suffered for the Lord. I think that this awakening that we're in is, is driving us to prayer, which is the best thing possible. And I'm hearing more and more from people that are like fasting and praying and begging and singing and just you know, lifting up the name of the Lord because the circumstances are so crazy. We need something that is a plumb line of peace in the midst, and that's Yeshua. So do you trust me? Yeah, some days are better than others. So, so he's coming from Beersheba in the south, and he's got to make a three-day journey. Three days, huh? Three days. Imagine that. Three days. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Three days, right? A three-day journey if you're walking, which they were doing with a donkey, from Beersheba to Jerusalem, which was then called Salem. It was a Jebusite stronghold at the time. But they were on their way from the south up there. About a three-day three day journey, right? And... The typology throughout this is it's overwhelming. This is the gospel in the Older Testament. Next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Right? Now, this is a very quick obedience for Abraham. He had a lot of stumbles leading up to this. He did some really bad stuff in terms of family systems. We won't do that tonight, but, you know, just, just read the stories. It's, you know, these guys were just like us. They got a lot of good press in Sunday school, but they just were just, just people. People. 
quick obedience. You know, he had learned a lot of lessons by then. So he was ready. When God said, I want you to do this thing, he's like, yes, sir, here we go. 50 miles, three-day journey. And he took four, there were four of them. It was Abraham, the father, the son, and the two servants, the two helpers. I love that. Four in Hebrew is the, it's, a, it's the letter Dalit, and it's a door. And it's a picture of a door. And it's in the, in the, in the, the uh, pictograph part of the Hebrew language, it's a picture of a door. So here's a, an opening of a door into the heart of God, an opening of a door into something completely new, the opening of a door. And I like that there were four of them because four is the number of north, south, east, and west. It's the four corners of the world. So this is a typology that includes the fact that centuries later, another one would go up a similar mountain and pay the price for the whole world. It's just, you know, God's just cool. He's just, he's just God. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. That is some kind of faith, right? We'll worship there, and we'll come right back. Like, again, it's like, <laughs> I won't tell you what I say to people in counseling, but let's just say this, that, that God is... is uh, that Abraham is blaming up. He's going to say, God, this is on you. You said he's going to be, I'm going to be father of many nations. You said in me all the earth will be blessed. So that means Isaac's got to have children. So it's on you. Blame up. That's my, my plan. Three days, picture of the resurrection. Probably in his 30s, like Jesus was 33, we believe, when he went to the cross. Right? And they went as one. If you... If you read this in the original language, it says that they went together in the King James and in the New Living, the ones that I was looking at, but the Hebrew says they went as one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They went as one to go up and to make this picture for us, the gospel. Romans, Paul said it like this, Romans 8. Since he did not spare even his own son but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Wow. Wow. What are you believing for? What do you need? Salvation of a loved one? Healing in your body? Financial breakthrough? Uh, sanity to be restored to California? That's a big faith. You've got to believe. You've got to believe for that one. You know? That's what we believe. We believe that California can be sane. So I've got to tell you, <clears throat> I was in Texas when we were doing television. We used to do post-production. We were in Israel to do TV and then post-production in Fort Worth. And I was going through a Whole Foods type of market called Central Market in Fort Worth. And I was passing through the wine section and I said to the guy that was there, hey, I work in Napa, have you been there? He said, oh yeah, I studied wine there. So I said, really? Did you like California? He said, I'm glad to be back in Texas. And I said, why? He said, because California is like falling in love with the most beautiful girl in the world and finding out she's completely insane. <laughs> and I find that to be the most refreshing way to think about this, although we're here for the long haul, right? We're believing for revival here. We're believing there's a move of God coming to this place. And when we travel around the world, we say, hey, how about I got an idea. Instead of praying, we fall into the ocean. Why don't you pray for us? Instead of against us. 
because there's a living body of Christ in California, and there are works up and down this strip of land that are believing for the future, for children and grandchildren. So why not? <clears throat> I just figure, you know, read the Bible. If God can do the stuff we sing about, split the sea so I could walk right through it, did that for my ancestors. Called me out of New York City. Can anything good come out of New York City? You know, he can do anything. So Leviticus 1 tells us, because this is the type, remember, this is a picture of, of the sacrifice to come, Jesus, right? Slaughter the animal. This is about the Day of Atonement. Slaughter the animal on the north side of the altar in the Lord's presence. And Aaron's son, the priest, will splatter his blood against all sides of the altar. <clears throat> Remember, trying to explain this to a vegetarian 12-year-old is very difficult. The whole bull he should carry outside the camp to a clean place <clears throat> where the ashes are poured out. Burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. You see this again in Leviticus 4, in Leviticus 6, and Leviticus 10. There's something in this that prefigures the sacrifice of Jesus. It has to be on the north side, and it has to be a clean place. Where was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? It was on the northeast side. It was north of the old city. And, and it was discovered in 18, let's see, in 1883, 18, let me see. Discovered in 1883 by, uh, <clears throat> had to be on the north, had to be a clean place. Joseph's tomb was on the north from the old city, northeast, north. And it had to be clean, unused. It couldn't be. So then why? You know how we, we always think, when you think about the cross, you think he was made his grave with the wicked? We think about the two guys next to him, right? That's what I always thought, right? But here's the thing. He was buried, it says in Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked. That's plural. It's bigger than the two guys hanging next to him but with the rich, singular, in, at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. I always thought the two thieves, that qualifies as wicked. You know, Jesus was righteous, they were wicked, that must cover it. No, 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 no. If you go to that place, and if you stand in the hotel where he was standing in 1883, and he looked north, you're going to see a place that looks like a skull. It was still, still buried then, they had to excavate it, but you could see the, kind of the openings of it. And right to the side of it was a tomb and a garden that was owned by a very rich man because the cistern in it is so huge, it had to be owned by someone very, very wealthy. But above it is a cemetery. And when you come with us, you'll see it. In fact, the Muslims are currently trying to destroy what's left of the Golgotha skull by planting more and more bodies and stuff up there. They're actually trying to crush it down. You know, it's okay. It should come soon. <laughs> Because who knows, you know. <laughs> I could watch my wife, I can feel her pain. <laughs> Buried among, among the wicked. There's a plurality there. there. There is a cemetery, still there, but there was a cemetery in ancient times, right? And so it's a cemetery adjacent to the garden tomb, which is what I believe is the spot. You know, I have friends who say it's the holy sepulcher in the city, 
And, you know, this endless debate, the Catholics say it's definitely the Holy Sepulchre, not the Garden Tomb. But when you go to the Garden Tomb, I mean, there's 100 years of prayer there, which is probably part of the reason why it feels the way it does, because people have been going there for 100 years and praying real prayers to real Jesus, and the tomb is empty, and it's pretty amazing. That's why we hold communion there. We do this the last day of our trip. We end the, end the tour with communion at the Garden Tomb. You should come. It's life-changing. But it's north from the old city, it's a clean place. Joseph Arathia's tomb was not used. And it's next to the wicked. It's next to buried by the cemetery. <clears throat> Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was far, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. John 19, after this, Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, it's a mistranslation, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body. Secretly is actually secreted, secreted. He was on purpose underground. He wasn't, he wasn't, um, it wasn't just fear. He was inner, inner sanctum kind of a guy. It's a, it's a KGB, the King James kind of does it, does it disservice. It's a kind of a verb, it's an adverb. He's undercover on purpose. And he's a somebody because he's got access to Pilate. You just don't go to act, you just don't go to Pilate and say, hey, yo, give me the body of this dead guy, you know. You, you don't do that unless you're a somebody. Joseph was a somebody. And there was a lot of controversy with the Jews, with the, the leadership. You know, it was, this is the original vacation rental by owner. Because, because the, everybody's saying, what are you, you're going you're to take this family treasure of a clean tomb and you're going to give it to this criminal? It's just for three days. It'll be all right. It's a short-term rental. It's only for the weekend. Love that joke. If you're listening to this on the podcast, I'll say it again. I love that joke. Joseph's new tomb was hewn out of a rock adjacent to the very spot that criminals were put to death. When you come with us, you'll see what's left of the Golgotha. You'll see the skull on the side of the hill. And it's, it's not on a hill far away. It's not that. It's on a hill in general, but it's very public because criminals were put to death on, on busy streets so that everybody could see them and mock them and, and be disgusted at them. So the crucifixion was a very public, naked affair. So you can see it now, now it's an Arab bus stop, which I don't know, is fitting in some way, I can't figure that out yet. But it's a bus stop, it's very noisy and busy and people come there and they wanna have a holy moment. It's kinda of like, uh, 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 uh. you know, that's all of Israel. You gotta find the Lord there and he'll find you. He'll find you there. <laughs> the stony sides of the Tomb, the clean place. Leviticus said you need a clean place. The clean place where Jesus was laid was part of the malefactor's hill. He was put to death among the malefactors. In, he made his grave with the wicked. You get this? Yes. It's not just the guys. I mean, one of them was clean on the cross. You'll be with me today, yes. right? So that, that can't be it. It had to be that he was, in fact, laid in a clean place in the north, as Leviticus foretold, and then he was with the malefactors because he's in the middle of a cemetery, adjacent to a cemetery. 
with a rich man, with a wicked in the hour of his death. His grave is the property of a rich man. The rocks which form the partition between his tomb and that of the other malefactors are themselves part of Golgotha. It's like the spillover from the place of the skull. And you'll see it. The skull's right there, what's left of it. And this garden is right next to it, right there. But that grave was the clean place where he would, he would lay temporarily. So who was Joseph? He was a member of the Sanhedrin, so he was a boss. He was a player in the governance of Israel. He was a disciple. He was driven into concealment because of plots on his life for having defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin openly. He was an open spokesman. His appearance before Pilate was probably a shock to the Jewish leadership, to the religious leadership. So who is this guy that found this tomb? He's in, this is in 1883. General Charles Gordon, Charles George Gordon. He's, he's had his illustrious career with the military in, <clears throat> throughout England, in, in all of England. This is when England ruled the waves. <clears throat> there was a time before England came against the Jews after World War II and went into decline, but that's a different story. Uh, before they did that, they, the sun never set on the British Empire. They, they ruled everywhere. But when they turned on the Jews, their, their power lifted. And they've been in decline since then. I'll tell you that some other time, but it's very interesting. Oh, we just go to, come to Israel, you get the T-shirt. So it's Babylon, X. Egypt, X. Syria, X. They've got all these X'd out countries. Jews still here. It's a, it's a really cool T-shirt. And it's really the story. It is the story of planet Earth. Because... God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. And so even glorious England, I love England. We love London. We love to fly in and out of there where we can. It's great, but it's been in decline since they withstood the Jews in 1948. America has been standing with Israel. America has been standing with Israel strong forever. We have had some glitches. We've had some pretty serious words only and not deeds, but now we're in a season of deeds. Do you know that this crazy president of ours, you can like him or hate him, I don't care, but he has 70% approval in Israel because they are not listening to him. He's from my neighborhood. I know how he talks. You know, it's terrible. You know, she's in trouble with his wife all the time, I'm sure. I get that. But he has done things for the Jews in Israel that no president has done since Harry Truman. And God says, I will bless those who bless you. So we are lined up for tremendous blessing right now. We just have to pray through. We have to take this rude awakening and pray through to the revival that we're expecting. California and around the world. So, so Charles George Gordon, he served all over the empire. He even was the, the governor of Sudan. Huh? Sudan is the next country that's going to make peace with, with Israel. <laughs> this guy who found Calvary, who found Golgotha, was the governor of Sudan back in the day when, is, when England ruled the waves. Okay, <clears throat> But 37 years before he's standing in his hotel, 37 years earlier, a, part, a guy named Andrew Bonar, who was a Scottish preacher, he was from Edinburgh, and he preached and taught in Glasgow. I, my wife's a MacDougall, so we always have that kind of, kind of cool... She's cheap like a Scotsman, too. She's great for me. Um, he, Andrew Bonar, 
he got the whole picture of what he what what Gordon would discover 37 years later. He got the exact location and the exact placement of all those things just by reading Leviticus. And you can't make it up, folks. It's like he read the word and he saw what would happen. And 37 years later, this guy, world traveler, is sitting in his hotel and he looks out and he sees, that's Golgotha. I bet there's a tomb there. I bet there's a garden there. I bet that all these things that I've seen in the New Testament are right there because he could see the, 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 the eyes of the skull. You'll, you'll see it. I'll a picture of it, I think. They showed it. No, it She's on the case. Yeah, it doesn't look like that anymore. It's a little crunchier now. <clears throat> Can you see it? Yeah. yeah, place of a skull. It's real. And the garden tomb is next to it. When you come with us, you will have an experience of the resurrected Christ. Now, whether it's the Holy Sepulchre like the Catholics think, or whether it's the garden tomb like the Protestants think, doesn't matter. What matters is it's empty. <laughs> That's the point. And that's what Abraham saw. He saw something about resurrection power. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, we have the fire and the wood. The boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? And I like, uh, this is the new, new Living, which is very popular. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Forget that. This is a King James. Sometimes old Jaime, he gets it right. King James said, God will provide himself a lamb. Gospel in one sentence. God will provide himself a lamb. Abraham knew it was a prophetic act. We don't know how much he knew, but... But Jesus refers to it in John 8.56. He said that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Something about this unfolding in Abraham's life was a forward look to what would happen at the cross. And Jesus referred to it. He said he, he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Wow. So there's some kind of salvation that goes in two directions. It goes forward in time from the cross to us, and something's going backwards too, folks. There's something going on there with these Old Testament saints. They saw things, and they know things, and then we're going to see them again because of God's love and mercy. <clears throat> when they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. This is why the rabbis can't get it. It's like, this is not the God we know, right? At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. It's like, Eli, Eli. In the book of Samuel, any wife knows this. Miles, Miles, you got to tell us twice. We just don't get it the first time. It's just the way it is. So God did that with Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Hineni, here I am. The only way to understand Abraham is from your perspective. The only way to understand this, this kind of thing, because God hates child sacrifice. God speaks against it forever in the Bible. God's trying to get us as a country to understand that. You know, we, we get that. He's not for it. But the only way to understand this is if the story of Jesus is true, right? which is why my rabbi, my rabbi friends struggle with it. 
the seed here, by faith Abraham, this is in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Now that seed, that word there, seed, is singular. It goes way back to Genesis 3.15. goes back to the seed of the woman. That seed is Jesus. That seed is not just all the Jews in the whole world. We love the Jews, hallelujah, but no, this is about Jesus. God will raise him up from the dead. He's the seed of the woman. Abraham took Isaac on a donkey, just like Yeshua entered Jerusalem on a donkey. I mean, it's just the, the parallels are all there, and there's for our, our understanding. I love this picture of Abe and Isaac going up the hill. I was preaching this on the garden. We were on the Temple Mount. And my unsaved guide, old war hero t- dude, he said when I told him that, you know, we have this tribal look, a lot of us, we have this kind of Jewy look, I said, you know, it's probable that Isaac and Jesus looked a lot like each other. And Isaac came up this hill, and Jesus came up this hill. And the guy had a revelation of the Jewishness of Jesus in that. Just as, just as Isaac carried the wood up the hill, so we see Yeshua carrying the cross, carrying the wood up the hill as well. Maybe you don't see it, but it's there. <clears throat> don't lay hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And he already knew this. God doesn't ever have a new idea. He knows everything, but he's communicating to Abraham that I see your heart in this. I see your, your giving this. I see your generosity. I see your character like mine, that you're willing to give what, what matters the most. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught, caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide, right? We say Jehovah Jireh and cowboy, but it's really, it's really the, the root word there is to see. God will, God will see. God will provide. He will see what's needed. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name, that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. This is all plurals, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Then your descendants, it says in, in the translation, but it's singular. It says your seed, singular, the Messiah, will conquer the cities of their enemies. In other words, what's coming from this is going to be a Messiah who will overcome the enemies of your life. And that's a word for some of you tonight. Some of you tonight, the Messiah is coming as your conquering partner to overcome things that are going on in your life right now. He will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. <coughs> then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. And the story goes on from there. Now, a couple of notes about this story uh, I don't know if you remember that there was a couple of times that Abraham had to lie about Sarah to get her, keep from getting killed. He was with Abimelech, I think it's called. Which is a, it's a title. It's not really a name. It's the father of kings. It's a title. 
And so he had to lie a couple of times. But it turns out it wasn't really a lie that Sarah, his dad, had four children. And Abraham and Sarah were two of them. So he actually did marry his sister. Take it up with God. Apparently this was before inbreeding in the British Empire. I don't know. You know, I don't know how that worked out, but she was actually the same father. Okay. Went back to Beersheba to live. So here, the story concludes. It concludes not in Genesis 22. It concludes in Revelation with this. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. It's poorly translated. It actually says, I sobbed convulsively. Because no one, no man, no kinsman of Adam, no one of the human race was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood it says a lamb. It's, it's the right adjective there is the. stood the lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so here, and we hear now finally, we'll hear from Yeshua in Revelation 22. That was Revelation 5. 22, he'll say, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Perfect mercy, perfect judgment. Trust him. According to his work, I am the Aleph and the Tav. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the Rishon Acharon. I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last. This I like to preach at Patmos. We need to go back there. Uh, he's coming soon. Stand For more information about Beit Abba, log on to our website at tfh.org slash Beit Abba or call our office at 707-455-7790.